Hello and welcome back to the Dame Adams Podcast. I'm Cameron Moyer and today's guest is the final in our three-part series on first-year JD courses, Wayne Josick, the current subject coordinator for obligations. As well as working as an academic, Wayne has worked as a commercial lawyer specialising in construction law and has a background in economics and philosophy. During our interview, Wayne and I talk about how he came to work as a lawyer, why he finds private and commercial law interesting, why we protect agreements through contracts, the importance of improving yourself as a lawyer after law school, and how to stay sane during law school. It's a great conversation with a lot of wisdom in it, and I hope you get as much out of it as I did. So without further ado, here is Wayne Josick. Wayne Josick, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Okay, so I just wanted to start with some questions about um, your career leading up to you working at the Melbourne Law School. So how did you come to study law in the first place? Well, I think I could only really describe that as a lack of imagination. (laughs) So I I like using words. I like thinking about language. I I like, frankly, debating with people. And it seemed like the sort of uh, degree that might cater to those interests. But I had no experience with law. I didn't know any lawyers, uh, certainly none in the family. So uh, it was a a speculative choice. Uh, But I think Mm -hmm. it's worked out pretty well. Yeah. Did you sort of consider going to any other fields while you're studying law or before that? Or is it just sort of you fell into it and that was just sort of the clear path? Not at all. Uh, so I, I studied commerce law and uh, certainly early on, uh, I enjoyed economics a lot. Uh, I was very interested in that. I thought I would go on and, and do some postgraduate study in economics. I considered dropping law uh, and I thought... I may as well finish it. So I overloaded subjects and finished the degree about a year early, um, which I think indicated the interest that I had at the time. Uh, But what I found um, was that once I started to do some more practical work, I did some work as a research assistant, um, I did some work as a paralegal, eventually trained as a lawyer. And really, my experience has been that the more you deal with the law, the more you deal with the practical applications, the more you deal with uh, what the law can do, the more interesting it becomes. Now, I know it's not everyone's experience, but that was certainly mine. So um, I certainly wanted to avoid being a lawyer for a while. So what did you do immediately after you finished studying law? So you said that you worked as a research assistant. What was the start of your legal career like? Sure. Uh, well, when I said I, I, I wanted to evade being a lawyer, I was being very, very truthful. I applied for zero clerkships, um, so I had no interest in those sorts of things. Um, I ended up working as a research assistant for people that I, I really liked, doing interesting work. Um, and frankly, the, the money was also quite good when I was a student. Uh, so I did that for a while. Uh, I studied philosophy for a little bit. I worked for a nonprofit organisation. Uh, and then... Because I've been hanging around university, um, helping out with reading guides and those sorts of things, um, I eventually got some more work as a paralegal and found that I I liked that. Um, And so I eventually applied uh, to train as a lawyer um, under the old articles program uh, and thought, well, I'll do that, do that for a year, and then I'll go off and do something more interesting. (laughs) Now, of course, in the course of that year, uh, there were plenty of highs and plenty of lows. But uh, in the end, uh, I found that I really enjoyed being given a question that I just answer. And that's really what happens often in legal practice. You know, I have no idea. 
but then you begin that process of researching it and perhaps looking at a textbook, starting to delve into it. And that, that idea that you can actually answer these complex questions that might help people, uh, that was something that really appealed to me. But I mean, look, the main thing I would say is uh, I know a lot of students nowadays think that there is some preset path that you have to follow to become a lawyer or a successful lawyer. And that just wasn't my experience. Uh, you know, it was almost an act of sabotage not to apply for any clerkships. Um, and I just want people to understand that we have career trajectories that are very different from those that we imagine you know, in the first few weeks um, or the first few years of being a lawyer. Mm. So once you'd um, started working as a lawyer, did you find that you specialised in any area or you, you were drawn to any area within the law? Yeah, well, th this again, I think, is an illustration of the idea that we bounce around much more than we expect, so we don't have that, that clear path. Uh, uh, so I rotated through various areas at a big commercial firm and ended up working as a tax lawyer, uh, mostly doing tax disputes work. So lots of taxes, you imagine, but you know, also that brings, of course, in aspects of dispute resolution, but trusts law, those sorts of things. So that was really interesting, interesting uh, intellectually. Uh, I, I enjoyed that for a while, but for me, it just wasn't sufficiently concrete. Uh, and I missed the exposure that I'd had to construction law, uh, where literally things are quite concrete, but you can actually see the, the fruit of the work. If you're working as what we call a front-end lawyer, you're drafting, negotiating contracts, uh, you can drive around and you can see some building that you've had some small part in. Um, and so uh, eventually I ended up a construction lawyer um, after spending a bit more time back at university. So what's involved in construction law? <laughs> well, uh, look, I hope you prepared for a three-hour Look, the way I see it, it's not really a single area of doctrine it's a, it's a it's a it's a industry focused specialty where you have to think about a very wide range of aspects of private law so contract really i think is at the core of that but you need to understand restitution you need to understand misleading or deceptive conduct you need to understand estoppel you need to be able to deal with other specialists working in property in planning and environmental law corporate um, in tax there, there are uh, dispute resolution aspects there are there are drafting negotiation aspects so it's a very very varied area and that's one of the things I liked that you you do actually have the opportunity to think about a wide range of issues you don't become incredibly specialized early on at least if you, if you make some attempts to avoid that mm. okay that sounds really interesting so moving from that I guess journalist idea to now talking about the obligations course which similar to what you've just described contains a lot of different areas of private law yeah. um so this is sort of an odd question to start with, but I just wanted to ask why you would say that private law is an interesting area to study, because I think it's maybe not as inherently obvious as with, say, torts, where it's very obvious that there's narrative-driven stuff and, you know, there's people getting hurt. And with, say, PPL, where there's, you know, 
big constitutional historical issues going on. So why would you say that private law and you know, obligations are um, interesting things to study? Yeah, uh, look, Cameron, if I, if I could disagree as politely as I possibly can, I would oh, like to do. disagree. I think in, in many ways, what we see in torts um, is exactly the same appeal that, that I find in obligations because we are dealing with stories. Mm. We're dealing with stories about the relationships between individuals, companies, government, and uh, I mean, let's be let's be frank about this. We're dealing with wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yet somebody has to have done something wrong, more or less, for things to get before a court. You know, let alone an appellate court. And I think that for me, it's the stories of the misbehaviour and the way that the legal system responds to that in very subtle ways. That, that's interesting to me. In a lot of ways, that's the. That's the surprise about this area of law. It doesn't have that immediate appeal, but I think the more you understand it, the more interesting it becomes, the harder, uh, the more philosophical the, the questions become, the more you know about it. Whereas I think something like criminal law, like constitutional law, I think has an obvious, um, an immediate appeal to lots of people for, for good reasons. But I just think that the law of obligations is something that grows on you. Uh, the more you understand it, the more you think about the about the theory and, and what it means for ordinary people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So now that you've answered that, I'll move on to questions about the actual content, I guess. Why oh, does... <laughs> I hope I'm not going to be examined. <laughs> no, 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 it's very generalist questions. <laughs> but, um, so why does the law provides special status to certain obligations between parties. So like a, a contract, for example, mm-hmm. why is a contract allowed to be special compared to some, you know, general agreement I have with another person? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, my personal view is that contract is really at the heart of the law of obligations, at the heart of private law more widely. Uh, and it's because we're dealing with bargains that people strike with one another and we're looking at that particular subset where the law will actually enforce those bargains. And so, uh, of course, things like the intention to create legal relations are a critical aspect of whether you actually have a contract or just some loose sort of agreement. Uh, And that's an interesting area of law, of course, by itself. But I, I think the thing that's really important to me about it is that this is, uh, it's a consensual agreement that parties have reached or which they've at least appeared to reach. And the idea that the courts uh, will enforce some of those arrangements is really interesting to me. Uh, And of course, it seems to me obvious that that's a a better reason for the courts to step in uh, because the parties have agreed because they've assumed obligations or at least appeared to. That seems a better reason for intervention than, than most others. Mm. Why do we um, sort of outsource that enforcement to the courts rather than leaving it to the parties themselves to resolve the uh, dispute? Uh, Because they can't, Mm. because they disagree and there's no way of breaking that uh, unless there's some independent third party. So it doesn't have to be a court. It could be that they go to arbitration. It could be that they get some assistance in reaching a negotiated solution by mediation. Um, it could be they go to some expert who gives a determination. There are plenty of options, but uh, it really does require a third party if they can't immediately agree. And I think 
really everybody except an extreme anarchist would think that that's an important role of the state uh, to enforce contracts, to enforce um, to enforce property rights, and so on. So, do these does the access to this enforcement of um, agreements have any larger social ramifications um, for, say, the Australian economy or you know, society at large? Absolutely. Uh, and if you were to press me for the most important reason, I would say it's, it's certainty mm-hmm. or, if you like, predictability. So I think one really important feature of the common law world, uh, particularly of countries like Australia, like Singapore, like England and Wales, is that uh, we, you know, we have convoluted contract law, but it does allow a reasonable measure of predictability. You're able to look at uh, a particular set of circumstances, you know, say a particular document, and in most cases we can we can conclude that the contract will be enforced. Uh, it might be doubt about some particular term and so on, but it tends to work in that way. And so I think that fosters a great deal of comfort, a great deal of certainty, a great deal of predictability. Whereas if you are dealing with um, some other jurisdiction where there's um, more capricious enforcement of contracts, um, then it makes it much harder for people to plan everyday life um, and certainly to plan much larger transactions uh, and you know, that's of course one of the reasons that in those situations where we're dealing with you know, some other jurisdictions without well-developed legal systems what you find is parties will often provide for the law of Singapore for example national arbitration in Singapore those sorts of things um, to give one example so I, I do think it serves a, a real um, a real public purpose and, and I think obviously an economic purpose. Well, that's actually quite interesting. Can you sort of expand on how, um, well, if you're aware of it, how the same issues are dealt with in other jurisdictions? Yeah. Well, look, I think I think in terms of those those core uh, former Commonwealth countries, I mean, just to give a few examples: Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, England, and Wales. I think we can exaggerate differences, but they're fairly minor. Mm. Um, Now, the US is a different question, but in civil law jurisdictions, there's a fair bit of variability, but I think it's probably fair to say we we would normally see a bit more intervention in some situations. And you can look at some of the areas like, uh, like the penalty doctrine in common law, which stand out as being unusual. Uh, and that sort of thing is is more common um, in some civil law systems. Uh, and so that's the reason why, for example, people might, uh, commercial contracting parties might have some uh, concerns about aspects of the German civil law, for example, uh, and might well contract on the basis of some uh, other jurisdictions law. Now, I say all this, of course, not being a civil lawyer, so uh, I, I don't want to say much more in detail about that, but I think broadly that, that distinction is fair. Uh, yeah. I mean, just to give you another example, at least as a matter of principle, within the common law, when thinking about contract almost exclusively, we are thinking about an objective approach. You know, we're looking for the external manifestations rather than people's subjective state of mind. Um, and as a matter of theory, at least, uh, that's a very different approach from the civil law. Mm. So then what 
So the civil law looks for a, a subjective intention of the parties. Well, yeah, I, I just emphasise that's a theoretical mm. position because in, in both cases, uh, we are looking for bits of evidence. Yeah. Uh, and so that evidence is you know, most persuasively normally going to be in the form of documents uh, or, you know, or, or some electronic exchange, you know, people sending instant messages or whatever it happens to be. That's normally more persuasive evidence than somebody uh, in the dock saying, yes, this is what I thought. Because obviously people have incentives to lie. Uh, they misremember things. They reconstruct things um, knowingly or not um, in a way that's, that happens to serve their interests. So, I mean, I, I think in the end you probably get very similar results most of the time, but it's that, it's that principle stance that's interesting and, and different. Yeah, it's quite interesting. So you've obviously got a background in economics. Would you say that there's other fields of study that can be brought in um, when you're discussing obligations and contract and private law? Oh, absolutely. And I think, uh, I think in a lot of ways the richest scholarship is, is not solely doctrinal, not solely looking at the case law, uh, but it involves other disciplines. So, uh, I mean, economics and, and philosophy are things that, that I've studied and there are, I think, obvious reasons that you might be able to think about those applications. But just to give you a couple of examples, think about something like the role of, of sociology uh, or psychology in thinking about the way that people behave under long-term contracts, the way that they might reach you know, accommodations, uh, they might negotiate things where they perhaps strictly legally don't need to. I mean, that's a very rich field of analysis um, to name one. Um, but yeah, there's room for very, very many um, perspectives. I mean, to give another example, um, I've done um, a bit of empirical work looking at the use of contracts. Um, so it's essentially statistical work combined uh, with a lot of interviews. Uh, and so that I think is a way of looking at the way that contracts work in practice. Yeah, it's really interesting. So I just wanted to, um, there's sirens behind me, um, <laughs> move on to um, some professional ethics questions, which I've been asking the previous uh, two people I've been interviewing. Um, so I wanted to pose to you a question that comes up in disputes and ethics, which is that, um, you know, yeah, interviewing a client one day, he's a valued long-term client with your firm. He asks you to conduct a series of transactions which will obviously disguise the movement of money for some reason. He doesn't disclose to you why he wants to do that, but it obviously seems a bit dodgy. Yeah. And so would you follow through with that transaction? Yeah. Uh, look, I, I, I would say the first thing that you try to do in that situation is just buy some time <laughs> because on the spot, um, if you're dealing with a client that you know, um, you're trying to help. I mean, that is your basic mindset that you're trying to help them achieve their aims. And I think it's really important when you hear that sort of alarm bell, maybe in the background a siren that goes off, uh, <laughs> just to stop because that's the sort of situation where you, you do need time to think. I mean, quite often you'll need time to think about what your legal obligations are. Uh, you'll need time perhaps to get more information. It might be that it's a perfectly innocent transaction, uh, but you need that time to think about it. Uh, and I mean, provided you can do this without breaching confidentiality by talking to 
other practitioners perhaps at the firm um, and that allows you to make an informed decision about it um, because I do think it, it's very tempting on the spot otherwise to go along with something because you're, you're just trying to be helpful. It's not that it's you know, some malicious intention, but uh, on the few occasions that I've encountered some ethical concern in practice, the, the one useful thing has been to say, <laughs> we need to stop and think about this and think you know, about whether this is feasible and how it will be done and whether it's the right thing to do and just to stall for a little bit to, um, to be able to gather your thoughts. Mm. Yeah, well, it's interesting you mentioned that because the last two people I've spoken to about this have been academics throughout most of their career. They haven't had as much experience as I'm guessing you have had in private practice. Um, so do you think their answers were both clearly you shouldn't follow through with the transaction? Do you think that it is an easy que- uh, yeah, question to answer? I don't think it is actually in the abstract because I just think you need more information uh, Mm. because quite often uh, you you just don't get all the information that you need from a client. And often if you ask for more information, if you look for supporting evidence, something that looks a bit strange turns out actually to be perfectly conventional uh, or sometimes things that you you think are you know, pretty every day might turn out to have some unexpected sort of motive. So I just, I just think it's a question of information. Um, I think it's very difficult to make the, the decision in the abstract without the, the time to think about it and to, and to know more about it. I mean, I'm not sure who the, the previous two people were, but obviously they're absolutely right. Uh, if there is a, a genuine concern about what's being proposed, uh, all I'm saying is it's often not that obvious uh, because clients will tell you things selectively, of course. Uh, and yeah, they may genuinely not know what's important to you to, um, uh, to be able to advise. Mm. So do you think within a private practice, there would be much pressure on a junior solicitor to um, conduct these transactions or would they have the support from senior partners and well, senior solicitors? Oh, a- absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, my, 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 my thought would be that that would be, you know, it, it would be, if not a universal position, then nearly a universal position that uh, nobody would seek to do the wrong thing. Uh, and I mean, one way of looking at that is to say that people respect the very significant legal and ethical obligations that they have. Mm. Another way of looking at it would be that, no supervising partner, for example, wants to lose their practicing certificate because you've done the wrong thing legally and ethically. So there are, I think, both of those, both of those reasons to different degrees, perhaps in different people, uh, support the, the same sort of conclusion. And I think that's probably consistent with what we see, that it's not all that often that you find, uh, it's still distressing, but it's, it's not all that often that you see um, practitioners who are struck off for, for that sort of ethical breach. So ethics are taken quite seriously within actual practice. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, I think people are very, very concerned about that. Um, and there are very well-established um, arrangements in most firms uh, for dealing with potential conflict of interest, for example. Um, you know, not, not just um, you know, some sort of policy, but everyday checks to ensure that 
only the right people have access to information that you're not taking on clients where there's some potential conflict or clients you have, might have some concerns about uh, that you're complying with things like anti-money laundering legislation and so on. Mm. Yeah, because I think there is quite a bit of, um, I guess, fear or a sense when you're studying d that you have to take these issues as being a bit more gray than they are and that once you are in practice, it's not going to be as... Um, clear cut as it's sort of presented to us in the class that you need to obey these ethical doctrines. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, I mean, there's something artificial about all law assessment, but in a sense, in a, you know, in a legal ethics uh, exam, for example, you're given a situation and right there on the spot, you're asked to think about whether uh, some proposed course of action is proper. And I mean, the reality is that the real world is not that simple. Uh, you don't have that sort of single exchange. You have all sorts of things going on. And sometimes you might just be piecing together uh, what the arrangements are. Um, and so you actually have to be thinking quite actively to, to spot those concerns. But I mean, I, I would emphasize it's, it's really only been a few times in the course of my career that I've genuinely had to, to stop and, and think about what the right course of action is to do in some situation. Um, it, it's certainly not something that I found an everyday occurrence, but that's really just because of the work I did. Um, yeah. If you're doing if you're doing criminal law, certainly there'd be very common um, dilemmas. I think where you're you're balancing uh, you know, multiple important interests and and where it's not you know, it's not immediately obvious what the right thing is to do. Thank you for talking about that. So I just wanted to move on to some wrapping up questions. Sure. Um, so have you attempted to improve yourself as a lawyer? Yeah, I, I would say you have to do that before I answer the question. You absolutely have to do that. Uh, so I spent um, quite a while in big law firms. Um, I'm still a consultant to one. And I see plenty of smart people who did well in law degree who have more limited knowledge about the law than you would expect because they work in some relatively specialised practice. They don't think generally about the development of the law. They don't look at recent high court cases. They don't look at a couple of journals every now and then. I do think you need to make that, that active interest. And, and one thing I think that's helped me is to avoid the trap of just studying one area very, very closely. Um, because you can see doing that, of course, improves your expertise in that area, but it limits your ability to spot any other concerns. Uh, if I can try to think of another way of explaining this, it's like being a, a medical specialist. Um, you know, let's say you're um, an eye specialist. Everything you see concerns the eye. So you, you're looking for subtle problems there. But if that's a limit of your knowledge, you, know, you, you won't necessarily think about other problems that the, uh, the patient might have. You know, let's say there's some problem with blood pressure that's the ultimate cause of some eye problem. It might well be that there's a general and underlying health condition you need to treat. And so it's that, that issue spotting, I think, is really guided by reading fairly widely in the law and, and deliberately trying to do that. Um, that's tough if you're in practice because you're generally very busy. Uh, but it is uh, it is very important, I think, to make time for that. Mm. Do you think working as an academic on top of doing your um, 
commercial workers helped you with that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So for most of the time uh, that I've been a lawyer, I've done some academic work or, or some practice work uh, and now I've been academic full-time for mm. seven or so years uh, but still with a little time in practice and I think they complement yeah. one another. Mm. Yeah, that's very interesting. So final question. I just wanted to ask you for any recommendations you have around books, TV shows, music, JD courses, or just interesting people who are worth, you know, following or paying attention to. Sure, sure. Um, well, we're not going to recommend any particular JD subjects um, because there are plenty of, of very, very good options, I have to say. Um, it, what I would say is it's... It's important to, to find some way of making study interesting. And I, I don't know about other people, but to me, it's, it's a dull life if all you're doing is reading a base. And so I just think that's quite useful in the background, provided that it's not horrendously complex material. It's good in the background to have some music playing. Um, and, I mean, it can be whatever you like as long as it's not too distressing. Um, I particularly like playing Bach or some of the, the minimalist composers, um, a lot of Philip Glass, because it's, it's, it's interesting but not hugely distracting. Um, yeah, yeah. I found listening to Bach as well last year was quite good at helping me to focus. Yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. As long as you don't, you don't listen endlessly to the Goldberg <laughs> variations and end up... Um, end up <laughs> <laughs> a bit more unsettled than, than you were at the start. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I just say is I think it's worth finding some good podcasts. And the reason I suggest that is that they're really good to listen to um, if you're out for a walk. And it, yeah, this, is, this is unsolicited advice. I'm sorry, but I, I do just think that's very important. Um, you do have to get some exercise. Uh, having a podcast is a nice way of making sure you go out for a walk for a reasonable time. You're doing something else as well, so it's that bit more productive. You can persuade yourself, uh, but that just makes it possible, I think, to um, to maintain some balance in your life. When you know, most students are very busy studying, working, have family commitments, and all of those sorts of things. Yeah, and I think that's very good advice. Um, yeah. So, just, do you have any books you recommend? <laughs> Uh, so, I'm, uh, well, I won't recommend um, any any law books. Um, what I would say is it's worth uh, it's worth challenging yourself. I think at least in the mid semester break at the end of the year to try to read one really interesting, really good novel because um, it's easy to let that slip when you're reading technical material all the time. Um, I mean read what you like, but I'd always put in a recommendation for the, the Russians, um, Dostoevsky in particular, uh, because when you get to read uh, those writers and, and Dostoevsky, really, they're just funny. Uh, their use of language is, is so subtle, so thoughtful, uh, that you can really pause at each sentence and, and, and analyse it, even in translation, and say, I could never do that. I could never craft one sentence in that way. Every word is perfectly placed. Um, so I, I think it, it's worth you know, trying to read something that's a bit uh, a bit serious um, at some point. Now, 
a lot of people will find that's really tough to do during semester because you're just reading so much. Um, you can be exhausted by that. And so what I tend to find when I'm teaching is it's just easier to, you know, to read some nonfiction. Um, if I'm really busy, it's quite good to read you know, a history book, for example. At the moment, I'm reading something about the Cold War. And so you can read some discrete chapter and deals with some incident and then you can turn off the light and go to sleep. And that works a bit better. But I do think it's nice to save uh, some interesting literature for, uh, for those times when you, you do have a bit of a break. Yeah, uh, And of course, um, of course, the mid-semester um, non-teaching period is coming up soon. Mm. Yeah, it's a bit too soon for comfort. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been a really great chat. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. You've been very kind. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's show, the final in our three-part series on first-year JD subjects. If you haven't already, be sure to go back and listen to my interviews with Ian Malkin about torts and Will Partlett about principles of public law. All three have interesting things to say, not just about their subjects, but about studying life as a lawyer in general. It's good food for thought whatever stage of the JD you're at. We'll be continuing with more interviews as the semester goes on, but for now, enjoy week three. <laughs>